everyone here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, just for starters, I think uh, for a round of probably introduction, welcoming you to this particular conversation, I think I'll pass to Patrick, who is our host, just to say something about what we do and who we are, and then we can carry on with who we are and what we want to talk about, which is inclusive evaluation. Yeah. Thank you. Dr. Patrick, please. Thank you, Tawit. My name's Patrick McGurk. I'm the director of the Social Impact Unit in the School of Business and Management at Queen Mary University of London. Thank you very much for coming and welcome to the podcast. I hope you're going to find this an interesting session. I'm particularly delighted to welcome Dr. Sadvidar and Dr. Lillian Schofield uh, to the panel, and we'll be welcoming your questions as well this evening. Um, I just wanted to say briefly, this is the fifth in our series of webinars and podcasts around the theme of social impact. So that's social enterprise, but also social impact evaluation. And this evening, we're going to contribute what I hope is really quite a new perspective on social impact evaluation, and that's inclusive evaluation. There's been a lot of work on social impact evaluation over the years and on project evaluation over the years, but I think it's fair to say that it's become quite formulaic. And what we don't know enough about is why we do evaluation and who we do evaluation with and what's it all for and what are the outcomes of this type of process, intended and unintended. So uh, doctors Dar and Schofield will be able to shed some light on these very important questions. I'm going to stop talking now and uh, feel free to turn my camera off uh, if, if you're the organiser and uh, I'll pass over to the panel and uh, welcome again. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Patrick. Um, for everyone, welcome once more. Um, my name is Stuart Natich. I'm a MSc student in the school, in the Queen Mary School of Economics and Finance. I take MSc Investment in Finance. And away from that, um, I'm a founder of an organization called Oxabiti Health, and we're trying to streamline the supply chain of medicines. And one of the questions that I get asked more than once is, how, how do you evaluate what you've done? Or, you say you have done this, but what's the impact that you're actually creating? And in many ways, I'd answer this in different perspectives. But I think today we're here just to talk more in bit about uh, the professional and the experience of people who have been in this field, and they know what needs to be shared. And from their experience, they can advise us the way forward on how to look at inclusive evaluation. And with us today is uh, Dr. Sadwe and Dr. Lillian. And I just want to pass it to uh, Dr. Lillian just to um, say something. And, Thank you, Tawet. And, and good evening, everyone. A it's a questions. great pleasure to be Thank here you. to Welcome. discuss inclusive evaluation. So as Tawet introduced me, I'm Lillian Schofield, and I'm a lecturer in nonprofit management here at Queen Mary University of London and a program director for the MSc Management Program. So I'll start a bit with my background. My background is in international development and public administration. And it's from this perspective that I'll be contributing to this evening's talk and discussions. So I'll be drawing from my experience working with international partners in developing countries, as well as my experience leading the development in practice module at the Bartlett um, Development Planning Unit, University College London 
where the field trip um, was a core component um, of the module. So with this module, students will travel to a developing country. Um, we've been traveling to Kampala, Uganda, where they would work with um, developing um, organizations, um, community-based organizations, local organizations, to understand how development interventions are planned and implemented. And this um, entails working with partners, um, partner groups, um, understanding how they do evaluation, understanding how they implement projects. So my aim would be to um, contribute to this field and also interrogate practice, as well as unpack some of the discourse and embedded assumptions in social change and development planning. Thank you. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Sadhya, please. Thanks, Tarawe, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, great to be on a panel with Lillian, who I greatly admire. I have a lot of respect for the work that she's been doing in this field. Um, my background is also very similar to Lillian's, where I also started in international development. Um, and it was during a gap year I took after my degree I went to work with um, NGOs in uh, New Delhi, India, where um, I started working with sexual minorities, um, looking at um, homophobic um, uh, laws and legal uh, um, uh, parameters which inhibit um, sexual minorities from accessing health um, and also um, create a, a, a horrendous uh, environment uh, in which they are stigmatized uh, daily and ritualistically. Um, and whilst I was there working with, with these NGOs, what became really interesting was this idea of reporting and how reporting was essentially a practice that took up almost all of the time of the workers in these NGOs uh, when they were in the office space. And it was often talked about as a practice that took them away from doing the real work. And it was also a practice that was talked about as something largely donor driven uh, with very little opportunity for folks working at the grassroots to really express their voices in a meaningful way in those reports and to shape the kind of knowledge that is then exchanged uh, to give an idea of what impact that project is having. So later on, I, I had the opportunity to do doctoral research on NGO reporting. Um, and this really led me to develop a, a broader understanding of accounting and social accounting in, in organizations and across institutions. Um, and today, hopefully I'll be talking a little bit about the work that I did with the drama department, an interdisciplinary project uh, between the School of Business and Management and drama called the verbatim formula in which we try to harness uh, forms of accounting which were performative, driven by um, uh, uh, theatre practice to provide an account, an alternative report, if you like, which did uh, some justice in uh, creating more inclusive conditions where young people with an experience of um, the care system were able to provide testimonies and an account of their experiences of social care uh, to stakeholders which they ordinarily wouldn't be in touch with. Uh, so hopefully I'll be reflecting a little bit on that. Thank you, Dr. Sadi. Uh, so 
before we just get down to, to the questions and all, um, when you ask me what is evaluation, and I tell you the Wikipedia, you know, um, definition of evaluation is systemic um, determinant of or subjects merit based on set standards whatsoever. I just I'd love to hear from both our panelists what what is the basic definition of uh, inclusive evaluation for this particular purpose. And I've heard a lot of uh, international development aspects of donor-driven perspectives. Uh, when we talk of inclusive evaluation, is it secluded to a specific area or is it a broad perspective that anyone, regardless of whether you are the community level or the um, market makers level that you can implement evaluation. Just, I'd love to hear that. Probably uh, Dr. Lillian, please. Okay, so just to go back to your question, what is inclusive um, evaluations? So we look at, say, in the context of development planning, the different actors within development. So if we look at what development industry is, it is this um, structured of uh, organizations, institutions, whereby different actors play a role um, and they, you know, carry out interventions, projects where they, you know, want to achieve maybe social change or some kind of progress. And we think about these numerous diverse actors that come together to play a role within development. And we see that when we begin to unpack this terminology, it means different things for these different actors. So like you defined, evaluation would be collecting evidence to see the progress, assessing the progress of um, the project, the impact of the project. It could be assessing the social or environmental impact of these interventions. And when you talk about inclusive evaluation, we'll be talking about evaluation that takes into consideration the multiple voices um, that are part of that um, intervention or part of the project. So we're talking about input from the different stakeholders involved in that project. So inclusivity for me means that all voices count when we collect those evidence. Um, all the stakeholders are contributing to the information, the knowledge that we use in demonstrating this progress or impact of a project. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sadvi, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on the same. And especially, uh, you mentioned aspect of uh, you working in um, uh, reporting and, and, and it was largely seen as donor-driven and the voices of, uh, of, of, of the community at the grassroots level was not being carried through the reporting. And, and Dr. Lina just mentioned an aspect of multiple voices. How, how important is this aspect of multiple voices in, in inclusive evaluation? And, and how can we demystify that this is now the whole scope of multiple voices? Are there some voices we are living out, whether consciously or con unconsciously in inclusive evaluation? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think Lillian really um, gave a really comprehensive uh, uh, definition there, um, sort of looking at the, the stakeholder uh, uh, dimension of an inclusive evaluation. Um, and I think uh, with that, um, and maybe sort of resonating with what you're saying, uh, Toet, um, is the different kinds of forms of knowledge uh, that go into uh, the, the account, the evaluation that is presented. Um, and I guess I'm bringing this idea of 
different forms of knowledge, different different ways of evaluation, um, is because very often uh, stakeholders will also be um, quite uh, uh, diverse in their backgrounds, in the way of how their lived experiences have shaped their knowledge and their ideas um, about a specific project, for example, or an experience of going through a service. Um, And so here, I guess, as an example, we could look at how um, how class and um, actually intersects uh, very specifically with the forms of knowledge um, and our um, um, the, the, our kind of approach to thinking about uh, how to give an account of something. Uh, when we talk about something being donor driven, it is often by folks who have control over resources um, and who have control over resources specifically because they have trodden a path along a a particular kind of educational background, a specific trajectory that has um, provided them with economic uh, stability. Um, And so this kind of um, uh, community of actors, if you like, Um, have a very particular way of thinking and uh, recognizing what valuable knowledge is. It is often written, it could be numerical, um, but more often than not, it follows some kind of academic and intellectual norms. Now, when you're working with multiple stakeholders who come from diverse backgrounds, um, we will find that Uh, uh, for example, in my kind of research, which looked at communities who do not have written alphabets, who do not have a written form of language, it is an oral tradition, that their knowledge is immediately considered to be illogical, irrational, um, because it does not fit in with the donor-driven idea of what knowledge looks like, what an account should uh, should be for it to be recognized. And so in these cases, things such as um, community uh, um, gatherings uh, through songs, poetry, uh, storytelling um, become hidden or erased in donor-driven, many donor-driven forms of um, collecting information. And so inclusive inclusive, uh, evaluation, sorry, is I think um, also an inclusion of different forms of knowledge of really disrupting and challenging some of those hierarchies that diminish non-literate, non-literal forms of, of knowledge and accounting. Thank you. And I like that aspect of uh, breaking the, 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 the hierarchy of what's largely outside here. And, and I'd just like to go down to more of um, how can inclusive evaluation improve sustainable impact? So Dr. Lillian, we talk much about sustainable impact and, and, and we say we have 17 goals, the SDGs to meet by 2030. How does inclusive evaluation contribute to this and more so how does it accelerate it? Thank you Talit. So if we say that inclusive evaluation enhances and endears ownership, um, leveraging lived experiences and also providing anecdotal as well as empirical evidence um, over project impact, 
then we think about um, ways that this inclusive evaluation can be made possible. And one way is through participatory approaches that we use in evaluation or we use in development intervention. So moving away from what Dr. Sadvi said, um, the top down to embracing the bottom up kind of participation, allowing the voices of communities to be part of the whole project, not just a particular phase of the project, but from the initiation of the project, from the beginning of the project to the end of the project and also post project. So sustainable impact for me, I would say goes beyond the project timeframe. Um, impact for me also means that the project carries on to be successful when it is completed. Now I use projects because this is what interventions mostly are. And we know projects are temporary. So project you have a set or defined start time and end time. So we want a project to continue to be impactful to society, to communities when that project is over. So for example, I take um, one of the projects we visited in Kampala, which was a housing um, project for um, former settle, um, settlements, who um, communities who were settlement in informal um, areas. And what they did was they came together as a cooperative and worked with this nonprofit organization that provided housing for them. Now, when the housing was provided, that was the, the, the project over. But you had to think about livelihood because part of the agreement for this um, cooperative was that they would pay a certain amount of money every year for the next 20 to 30 years, then they own the house. Now, look at how this project works. If we only, um, say, give them the houses, how will they feed? How will they get money to pay for this without developing their capacity? So what this project did and what some of the donors did was to also develop the capacities of this um, community so that they can have livelihood and they can have money to pay and sustain them till they buy out the houses. So this is what I call, I think is sustainable kind of development impact where after you finish the project, something is done to continue so that the communities continue to now take over the project and have that sustainable um, impact within that um, project. So if we move past this top down, bottom up, we go back to the question about inclusive evaluation, how can it improve sustainable impact? Then we talk about participatory and process-led um, approach in different phases of a project. So like I mentioned, from the initiation of the project to the design phase, to the evaluation. So we're not saying communities they only come in when we are designing or when we are implementing, but you're part of the process throughout the, um, the whole initiation of the project to the end. There are some of the, or if we say, these are some of the core themes of community-driven development, which is backed by many multilateral and um, bilateral organizations. And um, we have World Bank, you know, kind of moving towards um, community-driven um, development project. And we have tools that many organizations use, such as the ESG, which is the Environmental, Social and Governance Tool, which many organizations use because it encourages stakeholders to be part of the entire project cycle rather than just part of some cycle. So these are, again, if we look at tools like ESG, they're 
kind of tools already there, prescribed tools. But we think about moving beyond those prescribed tools to thinking about more innovative ways and participatory ways that communities can be part of this project in order for it to be sustainable. Thank you for that. And, and I like how we were able to visualize the whole picture from uh, your project in Kampala narrowing down to terms of uh, using tools to improve, to have a set standard of sustainable development. Um, Dr. Sadvi, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on the same. How does uh, inclusive uh, evaluation improve sustainable impact? I think that's that's right. What Lillian's saying about actually to engage with that question, we need to think about sustainability, right? And what does that actually mean? What does it look like? Um, very often sustainability is precisely about the sustainability of the project, the timeline when funding is active. Um, and the ideas uh, that in some ways when the project withdraws, then these kind of infrastructure has been laid out uh, to ensure that um, the benefits, uh, the positive impacts on that society continue um, is something that uh, is becoming more and more um, apparent, I think, in the way how funding applications are written, but also how evaluation actually looks at markers um, in terms of how uh, the, the benefits can endure. Um, it, it does, I think, bring to the fore um, how sustainability is innately tied to issues of social justice, um, that it's also about addressing, um, which is a little bit academic jargon, but addressing the kind of intersectional power structures that inhibit uh, communities um, from, um, um, from changing and uh, I think being, um, being in control of, of the, the direction of that community um, and actually having the, uh, the sovereignty, right, to actually um, uh, uh, to ask for something else, yeah? So um, this whole notion of, I think, sustainability uh, does require some quite serious unpacking. I think often it's imagined as this kind of really sort of collegial activity, uh, but actually, I think if we're looking at it from a social justice perspective, then um, securing the uh, the possibility for um, democratic debate, uh, for uh, flexibility, uh, for um, minorities to impact decisions is fundamental, I think, to this notion of um, um, social impact and how it's inherently uh, uh, sort of in, a, in quite a sort of, I think, um, political relationship with ideas of sustainability. Thank you. And just to uh, Dr. Lillian, just in a short, short one, two sentences. And as this is a question I was thinking as we were talking about this, at what stage does evaluation come in? Is it at the end of the project? You mentioned about projects. Is it at the end, is it in the middle? Is it during the longevity of the project? And this is also uh, probably to answer the question of is evaluation the same as uh, probably facing projects through a user design uh, perspective? So 
Monitoring and evaluation are tools that development pr practitioners use. So when you talk about monitoring, monitoring is you know constant; it flows from the beginning to the end. But evaluation comes at certain points in within the project, um, and certain points set by the um, donor or certain points set set by whoever is initiating the project to check that we're meeting what we said we're going to meet and it's having the same impact, or that it's meeting the efficiency or effectiveness of the program or. Pro Project. So it happens at certain times within the project just to, um, to check if it meets certain targeted objectives that are met. So it doesn't happen at the end or at the beginning, just like monitoring does. Evaluation comes at different parts of the project, depending on the objectives that have been set. Uh, thank you for that. Um, again, so I, I just like also just to take a different twist and let's talk about now, I think I'll start this time with Dr. Sadbe. How can evaluation be used to touch individuals and organizations and, and governments, for example, to improve project outcomes? How can we use it as a tool to improve outcomes? I think it's, um, I mean, I think, you know, evaluation is very often used in, in terms of uh, official reports or so uh, and such to actually pressure uh, uh you know, decision-making authorities into either changing or, or sort of replenishing or sustaining certain things for society and for society's um, empowerment and benefit. Um, <clears throat> I think sort of making visible and voiceable the experiences of um, stakeholders who are often uh, either left out or erased um, from these processes is 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 kind of fundamental to, to that project, um, and um, I, I can sort of reflect here maybe on um, the project called uh, the verbatim formula, which I mentioned earlier, where we um, uh, bought evaluation to. Um, um, different sites, different spaces. So we were essentially trying to um, challenge this kind of neutrality objectivity of this kind of official report being emailed or passed on in a hard form to someone who reads it and then makes decisions, but rather to bring that evaluation in a, in a performative uh, form to uh, people who are making decisions. So for example, we did a performance where young people um, perform testimonies of their experiences of being in the care system in the housing and finance department of Queen Mary's uh, offices. Um, so in a way, we actually disrupted that office space uh, by doing a performative evaluation of the services that universities provide to care leavers. Um, another time, we went to the office uh, for students uh, to, again, put on um, a performance in their space, I think was, was very successful in creating more affective relationships between stakeholders. So in a way, you kind of dislodge the sort of um, empiricism and sort of rational way of interpreting or analyzing a written report by um, insisting that uh, these relations between us, community members and stakeholder groups are to really sort of be prioritized in any kind of exchange of information or knowledge um, amongst uh, um, uh, project stakeholders. Thank you. And, and just to Dr. Lillian, I think 
So we have talked about how evaluation can be used to touch individuals and organizations and governments, basically stakeholders. And, and I'm just thinking, is there research data that can be used to compare, like, this is an organization that did kind of inclusive evaluation, and this did not, these are the outcomes from, from a stakeholder's perspective. Is there significant data to convince me that I should adopt inclusive evaluation? That's a great question that takes us to the discussion about what makes for evidence and who defines what this evidence is about. So when we begin to talk about um, inclusive evaluation and asking for evidence, then it begins to take us to the root of how do we see the world, our philosophical stance, whereby um, interventions, even evaluation, they're not neutral or apolitical. These are things that come from worldviews of the different development actors out there. So you tell me what makes for a good evaluation. So who determines what this evaluation is and whose knowledge counts? So if we begin to say this particular organization did this, and this is what we call inclusive um, evaluation, then there is that um, contested area that we're heading into to start to think and question, why does that knowledge count more than other knowledge? And it also brings us to whose knowledge counts when we talk about development interventions and what counts for the evidence that we collect in the field and who does the evaluation. So I think it's a question of, you know, twist, you know, turning that question back by asking whose knowledge counts and who determines what evidence counts in evaluation. Thank you. So, Dr. Sadbe, I just want to understand, in what ways are you seeing inclusive evaluation accelerating access to knowledge and information about sustainable development? And how does that make an impact? Zaitu mm. first. That's a great question, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you're saying how does, can you just repeat? So in what ways are you seeing inclusive evaluation? How does inclusive evaluation accelerate access to knowledge and information about sustainable development? And how I, does that make an impact? I mean, I think it makes an impact by disrupting some of those norms, right, around which we um, sort of very ritualistically enter into processes of writing reports um, and providing an account of 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 of, of success. Um, I, I think um, you know th there's kind of a, almost these sort of terms of engagement, if you like, that are already preset, um, and that um, uh, organisations who receive funds are. I think in a way quite constrained by, um, there's um, a propensity to give a positive outlook, to say that the project is a success, um, to uh, shoehorn the experiences, the issues, the challenges, the potential, um, the potentials of your activities and, and, and programs into what uh, was prescribed in 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 the kind of log frame analysis or the theory of change that you kind of preset the the project with, um, and so I think inclusive evaluation has a huge potential to actually uh, bring more embodied knowledge into projects um, into decision making fora, um, and I think to um, to actually uh, uh, I think 
also there is a need to remind folks in positions of power and who have um, decision-making authority uh, that the exclusion of these voices is doing damage, right? So I think sort of um, inclusive uh, evaluation can actually impact by creating some sort of dissonance, uh, something uncomfortable in the room. Um, Being accountable should not feel comfortable. It should come with uh, uh, some sort of um, uh, sense of um, friction, tension and disruption. Um, Otherwise, where I think falling into that very dangerous um, and, and, and I don't judge here because I think it's extremely difficult to balance that relationship between funder and um, fundee, um, but it can become quite a dangerous relationship where what needs to be said cannot be said. Um, and so I think, um, you know, the, the potential for inclusive evaluation to, to impact is precisely because I think it gives legitimacy to people being presented with knowledge and ideas that they may not be comfortable with. Thank you. And I like that aspect that you mentioned, um, reminding those in power that exclusion of certain voices can do more damage. Mm-hmm. And just to Dr. Lillian, I want to go to a different, tie this up and then go to a different question, which is, um, we have mentioned about inclusive evaluation. And is there any specific chance that this, the outcomes of this um, evaluation processes can be hyper-personalized where we have the same report over and over again and find it fits a specific criteria and how that does that affect the evaluation process in the long run and probably after that probably we can talk about is there any innovation in this space are we seeing emergence of digital tools and what what does that have to play in the long term for and what, what, basically what does that mean uh, for the stakeholders and also for people who rely on these particular outcomes? Thank you. As um, Dr. Sadve mentioned, m- most or many interventions are donor-driven and you have, even whether it's that participatory approach involved in it, you still have top-down kind of effects going there. When we talk about evaluation, we should know that many organizations do have a strict terms of reference that projects and uh, you know the whole project should follow so it's not one that in certain organizations that you can you know move past that strict terms of reference for some projects and for some donors they give um, a leeway to project managers to also adopt um, and be flexible within the communities that they work in so just to go back to your question knowledge management and communication is at the heart of evaluation. So if we want to move away or think about the hyper-personalization, then we have to think about um, local knowledge as well as indigenous knowledge. We cannot do without acknowledging the importance of local knowledge and um, indigenous knowledge. And Dr. Sadvi touched upon this. So for a consultant, whether it's um, in-house doing the evaluation or an external consultant or peer um, evaluation, then we have to begin to think about the donors or the, the, the particular party who were driving this intervention, you know, what is their priority? And we we have to move past the myth of this participatory or bottom-up kind of um, approach when we talk about 
evaluation that actually is set by donors, whereby project managers, you have to follow that strict terms of reference, um, whether you're embracing a more participatory um, approach or whether you're following that strict um, kind of approach. And for each project, it differs. So for some projects in Kampala, they know that um, if they follow this particular um, way that the donor has put it for them, the community might not kind of engage. So they have this kind of um, discussion, collaboration with the donors, um, feeding back to the donors what is happening within the communities and adjusting it. And for some projects, it's simply top down. So there is no right way of moving past this. Um, so indigenous knowledge, local knowledge, very important, but we also must move past that myth that participatory approach or inclusive evaluation really, really happens within projects. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Savi, I know you as an activist and we've been mentioning here top down, top down, top down. And from your perspective as a professional in this field and also as an activist where we feel inclusive population should in one way or another come from um, bottom up or let's meet somewhere in between. What's your, what's your thoughts around the top-down approach and how can we change that? I think just maybe talking about this from a stakeholder approach um, that, you know, very often what we find is, is that change will come um, from external pressure, um, that change is rarely the outcome of a diplomatic or democratic, so-called democratic debate, uh, because what um, often stakeholder dialogue does is that it works towards building consensus. Um, and that objective to build consensus will eradicate the voices of minorities just by the very process through which it's structured. And so external stakeholders, so-called external stakeholders, the activist groups, the pressure groups, the folks who are always kind of on the outside of these discussions, I think are the, um, the spaces and the communities that need to have um, some kind of platform um, and uh, certainly, um, um, uh, you know, we, as an academic, what I feel is like something I can do is actually provide visibility and voiceability of what many activists are trying to do in terms of trying to shape or dislodge some of these logics that structure a lot of the donor-driven agendas. Um, so um, I think, you know, always listening for that voice that is resisting in dissent, making sure that you're not working to erase that voice, you're not working to uh, build consensus at the expense of that voice, because it's very often that voice uh, that position, which is actually confronting how that system is working to exclude, working towards a very unsustainable agenda. Um, and so, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> um, so I think um, to your to your question, it's I, I think as as an academic, my role in all of this has been, and I see it as being one that works in dialogue with external stakeholders um, and works uh, 
to um, bringing these ways of accounting and offering accounts in solidarity with these groups, uh, rather than trying to bring them into a, a consensus building exercise, which will probably mean in much likelihood that that voice is going to be dissolved or diluted to kind of conform to some of the ideas uh, preset um, by, by those who, who are making decisions. Thank you. And honestly, I've been learning a lot from this conversation. Um, and, and I mean, we have gone through a couple of questions discussing inclusive uh, evaluation. And just to tie this down, I want to hear about your, your reflections and what you think about the whole field, uh, your professionalism in it, and what you can tell to our audience about inclusive evaluation and why it is important. And it's just a few minutes you can take on just to say it and then probably you can wrap this up with questions and answers from uh, the audience. Yeah, I think we can start with Dr. Lillian, please. Thank you. Um, so my reflection from this discussion just goes back to the different forms of knowledge that make evidence. Um, inclusivity for me means that all voices are included within that evaluation. If we think about evaluation as, you know, groups, all the stakeholders participating in the success of the project to have that impact, whether it's environmental or social impact, then we think about the voices and also the voices of the communities where this intervention is taking place. Um, there are, you know, this notion that everybody contributes, but there are also silences and those silent um, community members also tell us a story. What are we not hearing from them? Why are they not contributing to this project? So why are they not you know, contributing to any part of the development or the project cycle? And I also think about um, how evaluation can be used um, for impact and thinking about some of the projects that we visited in Kampala and how they've learned from this particular knowledge sharing from both bottom-up and top-down kind of collaboration into what knowledge that builds into something that is sustainable for both communities and also meets stakeholders and donor-driven um, agendas. Thank you, and uh, that was quite clear. Um, Dr. Sadvi, I'd love to hear your, your reflections as well about this conversation and probably any other additions that you may have about the field and this particular topic about inclusive evaluation. Um, I. I think it's important because we need to uh, keep reevaluating re what inclusive evaluation is. And so um, we need to do this in terms of where we're at historically, where we're at uh, in terms of geopolitically, um, economically. We need to keep coming back to this idea uh, because it's such a fundamental aspect of gaining legitimacy and for uh, working towards um, a project for change, for transformation. So um, I think as an idea and as a practice, uh, we do need to keep this afloat and very much at the center. Um, we shouldn't get comfortable with the idea uh, because I think as soon as we get comfortable that we've kind of understood it, we've got the practice, we know what we're doing, um, we will begin to numb ourselves uh, to the, the struggles and the voices of folks who 
are on the periphery of this of this of this conversation. Um, so I think, um, yeah, it's it's incredibly important that we keep this this issue um, alive and we actually keep open the platforms to critically engage with how are we defining it. Thank you, Dr. Sadler. So um, that was our final discussion, and thank you to all the audience who've been here.